0: So, eat a live frog every morning and nothing worse will happen to you the rest of the day. That's what Mark Twain said. Eat a live frog every morning and nothing worse can happen to you the rest of the day, right? And I wonder sometimes if it's like that uh, when we turn to our Bible and our prayer time. Sometimes we think, oh, you know what? I don't want to do this. It's hard work. I don't understand the Bible. It doesn't make sense to me. I just want to get it done. Take the box and move on. And nothing worse will happen the rest of the day. These are difficult days, aren't they? And, and we keep hearing phrases like uh, "unprecedented uncertainty" and "new normality." But I ask you: in, if, it's felt like, if it's ever felt like you—if it's ever felt like that for you when you've opened the Bible, this is for you. And here's a question for you: How, in these difficult times, how in these difficult days, do we look after ourselves mentally and especially spiritually? How do we learn to lean into hope and not fear when all around us are, seem to be in fear? How do we not sink into a sliding mud of worry? Because there is, as Christians we know this but we forget, there is an unprecedented certainty in our lives. There is an unprecedented certainty, which is God. How do we lean into God and not into fear? Well, this series, in this series we're talking about the joys of Christian living. Uh, we've talked about the joy of knowing God last week. We're going to talk about the joy of prayer, the joy of remembering. And today, I want to talk to you about the joy of Scripture. But how, uh, is it always a joy? Is it always a joy? Not always. And before we get into what is the joy of Scripture, I just want to deal briefly with, at least mention, some of the difficulties of Scripture, because sometimes it's hard to read the Bible. Um, sometimes we get stuck. We don't, don't understand what I'm reading. doesn't seem relevant to me. And I've here put a few articles on my website, on the homepage. It's called 7minutes.net, and I've put four articles up there today just for you. So the, there's things like questions we're afraid to ask about the Bible, because sometimes we do have questions. Why is this passage so violent? Did it really happen? There are questions. Why are the weird stories in the Bible? Because there are some very strange events in Scripture and they don't seem to make sense sometimes. Other ways of coming to the Bible apart from simply reading it. So if you have any of those questions, take a look at that. But today, we're actually talking about the joy of Scripture. Today's topic, what's the joy of reading the Bible and how can I make it a joy? How can I Uh, convince myself, how can I believe that this is God's joy for me? And how can I experience that joy? How can we make reading not just interesting or exciting, but actually a joy? Well, if you get this next point, you'll get it. Okay, But you have to get this next point. So hang on to the question, how can I have joy from reading Scripture while I tell you a story, an incredible story? This story started a long time ago. It began with a new created order, a new world. It was exploding with life, bursting with new creatures, with flowers, with colors and light. It's the world of Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible. Stunning and beautiful. But within a few, within a few pages of that creation, the first murder has already taken place. Something awful has come into the world and suddenly everything is different. And like a blot on a, a blot of ink on a white sheet... This perfect world is spoiled. Nothing is the same again. Increasingly, the themes of this story become frustration and conflict and sorrow. Everything seems to be spoiled. But then the author of the story steps in. The author of the story, around 2000 BC, sends, starts a rescue mission. He chooses a man called Abraham. And he makes a promise to Abraham. He says to Abraham, who's, who, him and his wife are in their 90s. And he says to them, look at the stars in the sky. As many stars as you can see, that's how many people will come from you. You're going to be the father of thousands and a new nation. And you have a land of your own. Well, Abraham doesn't understand it. But the story continues. It moves on. There are many subplots and uh, twists and turns. After Abraham, there's Isaac. And then there's Jacob until around 1500 B.C., the nation of Israel, there are thousands of them now, just as God was said. but they're all in, enslaved in a country called Egypt under Pharaoh. But the author of the story, they cry, they cry out to him, and the author of the story hears their cries, and he promises to rescue them. And he does it through a man called Moses, and we read about it in the chapter called Exodus, the second chapter. And so the people escape from Pharaoh and escape from Egypt. The, so we've got ancient Israel now wandering through the deserts of the Middle East for decades until eventually God's, God brings them to a land of their own, just as he promised to Abraham. He takes them there under a man called Joshua. And they enter this land, and a kingdom of ancient Israel, the kingdom is established in this new land. It's ancient Israel with the author of the story at its center. It's ruled by people called judges like Gideon and Samuel, and, sorry, Gideon and Samson. And despite a few bad apples, things go pretty well for ancient Israel. Things are going okay. So well that the nation nation of Israel, confident and settled in their new country, in their new land, they start looking around. And they see the countries about them and they say, Hey, all these other countries, they don't have judges. They all have kings and royalty and processions. So it seems to them to be a proper nation, to be a respected nation. You need a king. So then they say, they cry out, we need a king. Now, the author of the story knows this is not going to turn out well. This is a bad idea. But the nation of Israel keeps crying out for a king. So in the chapter of this book called Samuel, Israel gets its first king. He's called Saul. And around uh, 15... uh, Saul is followed by David, Uh, Israel's possibly greatest king. And around 1500 BC, Israel is thriving and prosperous. They're at an all-time peak. They are the masters of their area. They defeat their enemies. They build community. They work work the land. And they more or less worship God. But David is only a man. He makes mistakes. Big mistakes. He commits adultery. He commits murder. And Solomon, his son, takes over. But eventually Solomon dies. And then the death of David's son signals a new direction in this story. Everything goes south. There are arguments and fallouts and northern Israel falls out with southern Israel, and they break away into two separate countries, each with their own kings. Everything seems to be, seems to be broken. We read about it in the, story, in the chapter called Kings, because there's one king after another, after another, after another in the north, all of them rubbish, and one king after another, after another, after another in the south, almost all of them rubbish and wicked. These kings fail, and Israel as a nation fails. They end up worshipping foreign gods from the lands around them. They've lost sight. There are warnings again and again from people that we call prophets, who will each write their own chapter, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. And they say, come back and worship God, or the author will give you up. He will give you up to a foreign power. But the people don't listen. And so in the 6th century BC, around between 593 and 597, ancient Israel is led away into captivity, into slavery, For the second time in their history. This time not to Egypt, this time to a country called Babylon, or what we now call Iraq. One or two, like Daniel, he has his own chapter, do pretty well. But for most of them, this is a time of bitter regret, a time of mourning, a time of looking back to, to God's promise, to the author's promise, which was fulfilled in Abraham. They realize that. But it's too late. It seems too late. But in the darkness of exile, of slavery, in the darkness, those prophets, do you remember them? Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they call out words of comfort. And they say, don't, don't be afraid. Things will look up. The author has heard you. Uh, Jeremiah calls out, don't despair, he says. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And Isaiah calls out, we heard it today, Don't be afraid, Israel, don't be afraid. For I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name and you belong to me. When you pass through the waters, the rivers will will not wash you away. When you pass through the fires, the flames will not set you ablaze. These are words of comfort. Isaiah also speaks of something else. Something that will happen in the distant, distant future. He says, God will send you a sign. A virgin will will give birth to a son. And he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. But nobody understands it. What's he talking about? So they're still in Babylon, weeping and wailing. And the author hears their cries. So the author once again intervenes. And around 550 BC, under under an emperor called Cyrus, Israel starts to return to their ancient land. We read about it in the chapters of uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. They tell us how Israel returns from Babylon back to ancient Israel, which is flattened. It's completely destroyed. But they slowly start to rebuild the walls. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the remnants of a nation. So around 400 BC, Israel is no longer proud and mighty. They are broken and they are paying homage to a foreign king. But they are a nation again. So we fast forward now. 300, 200, 100 BC, the rise and fall of the Greeks and the rise of a new empire based in Rome until we arrive at a tipping point in this story around 0 AD. Caesar Augustus is emperor in Rome around 0 AD and once again the author changes the direction of this story unpredictably. He does it in an inconceivable and even unthinkable manner because the author himself enters the story. The author himself enters his own story. Visits the earth, but not as people expect, not as a warrior come to defeat the Romans. He comes in disguise. He comes accepting taunts and ridicule. He comes to a poor family. He comes as those prophets long ago said he would come. He comes, in fact, as a baby. Later, he'll be known as Emmanuel, God with us. But for now... They call him Yeshua, or in our terms, Jesus. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each have their own chapter, each give their own view of this Jesus and his life. And this Jesus tells, comes and tells of a way which is different, and on the face of it, it makes no sense. Jesus says things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says, don't worry about the things of this world. Seek God's kingdom and these things will take will be taken care of he says i haven't come to restrict your life to give you rules i've come to give you meaning and purpose i've come to give you a fulfilled life more fulfilling than you've ever known and he and he does miracles he stops the storm once once out on the sea and he heals people he makes people better but not just better <clears throat> He also gives them a vision of a new order, a new heaven and a new earth, a new time. He calls it the kingdom of heaven. And he says, it's here among you now. And it becomes very popular, this Jesus. Thousands come to hear him. Thousands gather around him. Ultimately, though, this story has a horrible ending. Because Jesus is taken to a cross, which is an instrument the Romans use for torture and execution. He dies. And it's a shocking and terrible death, an appalling death, an appalling ending. But it's not the end, because once again, the author does the unexpected. He reconfigures the laws of nature themselves, which he created back in Genesis 1. And without warning, Jesus rises from the dead. And he announces victory over everything that's gone wrong in the world. He announces victory even over death itself. Well... There's excitement and it generates a following. People start coming to hear about this man who's risen from the dead. And his disciples start telling people about him. A new movement is born in the chapter we call Acts. It spreads like wildfire across the world, desperate for hope. This new message, they call it the church. Paul, a man called Paul, has a big part to play in this new thing called the church. He founds new churches in in other countries, and he writes letters to them. We read them again in this same story. And Paul makes his own huge discovery. This is no longer just about ancient Israel. This is no longer about the Jews. Paul makes this discovery, because he's a Jew, but he discovers that anybody who puts their faith in this Jesus is adopted into his family and, take, and becomes a part of this story. There is now, says Paul, a new Israel of anybody who puts their faith in Jesus. But the story doesn't stop there. You might think it would. The story carries on. It keeps moving forward. It goes through the Middle Ages, uh, the Enlightenment, the, uh, the modern era, the postmodern era, until the story arrives here today, 21st century. Here we are, watching and listening Everybody's anxious and talking about a new virus. But this story won't stop for that. However many pandemics, however many stock market crashes, however the rates of illness rise, this story will not be stopped. It moves on at an even more accelerated pace. And this, now this story looks forward to a new time, a final time, a final reckoning. A restoration of that original perfect created order from Genesis 1. This story completes in the last chapter of this book, which we call Revelation. It's not just a completion, but it's an everlasting conclusion that never stops. Everything is restored back as it should be, as it was in the beginning. A new world of radiant beauty, of restored relationships, of fulfilled longings. The author says, we heard it today, my dwelling place will be with my people. And the author's dwelling place, heaven... Is this world as the author always intended it to be? And on the very last page of this last chapter, the author makes a new promise. Lena read it to us. He says, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain. The old things have passed away. Friends, this is one story. This is one story. This is your story. This is your story. This is, about, this is about your adopted family, your adopted ancestors. And this book speaks to your present and your future. His promises are for you. So, in concluding, why is it a joy to read Scripture? Why is it a joy to read Scripture? Well, the reason you can read the Bible with joy It's not simply because it's good for you, although it is. It's not even because God wants you to, although he does. And it's not even because it's a great story, a single story, although it is. It's because this one story is your story. If I said, here's a book that's been written about you, your ancestors, it speaks to your present day and it tells of your future and it's written by somebody who knows you intimately, wouldn't you be curious? I was. That's why I started reading the Bible. And so God invites you, God invites you to hear again this story in which you feature, to listen to his promises, to hear his soothing words, to be reassured that all will be well. Welcome to the Bible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that your word is alive and active today. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that you've written it in this book, this book of love, a love story of you for us. Father, thank you for your great love for us, for your reassurance, for your compassions never fail. Thank you for this, your word, today. Lord, home it to our hearts. Help us to take it home. Help us to take it in. Because in reading this, we we can know you, truly know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just before Phil sings um, again, I've asked Will if I could just spend one or two minutes just telling you about something new, something new and exciting, which is starting in 2021. Our story. Our story is a reading of the Bible through the whole Bible. We're going to go through the Bible, all the big stories... All the big characters and all the big events in one year. This is not the whole Bible in one year. Okay, if you do the whole Bible in one year, that's great, but that's really hard. This is just the big stories, the big characters and the big events, a page a day. And we're asking you to join us. We're working out the readings, Jonathan and myself. We're going to launch it in January 2021. And we hope that the whole church reads with us. It's a little bit like, um, I, I think of it like, if you go on holiday to uh, an ancient site or to an art museum and you wander around on your own. Well, that's okay, but you can get lost. You think, what am I doing here? What happened here? What's it got to do with anything? If you take a tour, the tour guide will say, we'll take you to the best paintings, the ones with the story, the ones that connect. And that's what we want to do. We want to do a guided tour. The big stories, the big characters, the big events in one year. We'd like to start in January and we hope everyone will, will join us. Uh, If you're new to Scripture, and you're thinking, I want to do something before that, try reading the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament towards the back of the Bible. Try reading that. And we hope that uh, in January you will all join us for what will be an exciting journey.